class with Mr. Lutz and in today's episode we're going to be taking a look at the age of imperialism and it may seem to you like we've seen imperialism all year long in this class and now we're calling a particular chapter of study imperialism. So the question you may have is what's changed? Why is this a discrete thing? And really, it's because we're no longer talking purely of domination solely through a military means. Imperialism is continuing to take this military form where one country physically dominates another, but now it's going to also start to take an economic form where business interests from an imperial nation will exploit the colonized lands and people without ever having to necessarily directly govern the territories from which they draw the significant amounts of wealth. Colonialism does still exist during this time, but it doesn't only involve setting your people into a foreign land. Now it also involves installing your political and your economic institutions into this foreign land as well. So whether or not lots of your people are moving there, your colony is operating in a manner that's heavily influenced by your politicians and your businessmen. Over in the key concept connections, we'll tackle the motives to practice imperialism, uh, the features or the effects of imperialism, and the resistance to imperialism. So let's dig into this pivotal period in global human history. Let's begin by tackling why European nations were motivated to secure control of global empires. We'll begin with the most significant reason, which was to secure economic gain from these colonies. As Western Europe continued to expand its industrial output, it became clear that spreading the territory of the home nation would be economically advantageous for several reasons. First, these places could be sources of valuable raw materials that were increasingly driving the industrial era. So we're talking about things like cotton, rubber, tin, and copper, among other resources. Exploiting these lands for their natural resources or establishing plantation-type systems to squeeze as much as they could from the land was good business in the minds of those practicing imperialism. Second, these colonies were virtually untapped markets to sell the manufactured goods that were flowing out of these new European factories. The potential they had for selling these goods was an attractive prospect for the capitalists of the day. And finally, the indigenous peoples of these lands were useful to Europeans as sources of cheap labor that could help to maximize profits in their venture. Now, colonies were also to be established because they were potentially located in a militarily advantageous area or because these new colonial powers did not want to see their rivals secure these same places. I always think of the United States' annexation of Hawaii as a territory officially in 1898, because it helps springboard a stronger American presence throughout the Pacific, so it kind of fits with this example. The competition for colonies for the sake of competition stirs up thoughts of the Berlin Conference of 1884 and 85, when major European powers made an effort to partition the African continent in a way they believed was sure to help offset any tensions over competing for overlapping claims 
and thus the threat of a potential European war in relation to the matter. And don't forget either that not a single African delegate was present to discuss the future status of their own lands. So the question you may be asking is, how could Europeans justify practices such as these? Now, in one sense, Christian missionaries are going to follow initial movements into these territories with a campaign of teaching the values of the religion in hopes to spread Christianity into Africa and Asia. These missionaries have a complex relationship, though, with imperialist practices, because at times they'll condemn the absolute exploitation that they see and the disregard that seems to be shown towards the victims of imperialism, but they'll often fall short of working to change the policies of imperialist nations because they want to avoid biting the hand that helps to feed their missionary ventures. Now, another way in which imperialism can be justified was thanks to Herbert Spencer and his application of the theories of Charles Darwin. If you've had biology, you may recall Darwin as the scientist who pioneered the theories of natural selection and evolution, arguing that the species best situated to adapt, or the fittest, would be those who would survive and thus carry on biological traits of their species to the next generation. Spencer and like thinkers would take this survival of the fittest theory, and they're going to create social Darwinism, which incorrectly applies this biological theory to the different races of the world. Many began to justify imperialism as a practice that would help to spread, and I want to use this phrase very loosely, quote-unquote, civilization to people they deemed unrefined and barbaric. So we've got to make it clear, this civilizing duty is not a motive for imperialism. Thinking such as this is misguided, because what it does is it downplays the fact that racism is furthered at this time to justify the exploitation of the victims of imperialism. If you guys remember, racism came about in our class first in part due to the Enlightenment, and also as a way to justify why blacks from Africa were to be enslaved. We can't forget the Europeans who practiced imperialism were not intent on bringing about civilization, much as they'd like to say that, because they were far more concerned with securing economic profits and political strength from controlling these places. They saw the differences in others as a product of their perceived inferiority, and it thus made it easier to justify taking them over and exploiting them. So finally, how is this able to go down? We didn't see empires of this size in period four other than the Americas. Now stop for a moment and see if you can recall why empires were built there and not in, let's say, Africa, India, or China. Can you remember? It was epidemic disease that helped pave the way, not to mention instability in the two major empires, the Aztecs and Incas, as well as European weaponry that opened them up for conquest. So in this era now, we have quinine powder, which had come from the bark of a tree originally found in the New World. It was learned to be able to treat and prevent malaria, the disease spread by mosquitoes that proved to be one of the biggest foes for Europeans once they'd arrived in more tropical parts of the world. This meant one less thing for Europeans to have to concern themselves with when working near the equator. The steam engine made its way into ships that were able to easily navigate upriver as well as locomotives that could help to facilitate the transportation of goods and people, including soldiers, of course, in a more efficient manner throughout the land. In a similar regard, the invention of the telegraph would allow for more efficiency in the transportation of information. And finally, by the end of the 19th century, 
European firearms were far advanced beyond any sort of comparable competition. They had developed not only rifle technology, but also the Maxim gun, which was the forerunner to what we now know as the machine gun. One battle that illustrates the devastating effect of these weapons is the Battle of Omdurman in Sudan, which ultimately led to the British colonization of that region. This battle saw a few hundred British killed in a few hours, while in comparison, there were 20,000 Sudanese soldiers killed in that same amount of time. So we've kind of established now how and why imperialism is able to begin, but let's look at the effects of imperialism in a broader sense. And, and rather than focusing on regional themes and stories, I'm going to just try to discuss how places around the world were impacted across the spice themes. And as always, as I talk socially and politically and all that stuff, none of these categories can exist in isolation of one another. So as I'm talking about political effects, I am sure you will hear economic and social things overlapping. So keep your ears tuned for that if you're taking notes as you listen to the episode. So first, socially, there were social effects of imperialism for those who fell under European rule. Uh, This is primarily a result, though, of new industries or agricultural commodities being produced in the colonies. So new plantation economies, for example, in modern-day Sri Lanka grew tea, and this requires women to primarily be the ones in charge of harvesting the crop. Now, these plantations were developed at the expense of tropical rainforests, and so it undoubtedly would alter familial relations and duties. Europeans, though, did generally not directly interfere in local customs unless they proved to be unsavory to their cultural tastes. This could be evidenced in British efforts to ban sati, which we had talked about in an earlier episode, if you recall. It was the controversial Hindu practice of widows being expected to throw themselves on their husband's funeral pyre. They, uh, they as in the British, as well as earlier groups, including the Mughals, had worked to ban this practice, and, and the British are really going to be able to minimize the presence of this practice any further. Overall, though, the mixing between natives and Europeans is minimized thanks to European efforts to live in segregated communities. Interracial relations are legally banned in many colonial locales, and the separation does no service to helping to minimize racial presumptions and theories about the supposed inferiority of those who were colonized. So moving into political effects, we're going to kind of continue with India. Uh, It's slowly and gradually absorbed by the British during the 18th century, as they're going to establish a new precedent for governing called the Doctrine of Lapse. While the Mughal Empire is losing its grip on control of the subcontinent, this doctrine is being established which says that if the ruler of a region dies without a male heir, then the territory would fall into the control of the British East India Company. This policy is often enforced with a military presence that is staffed primarily by an army of Indian sepoys. So to recap, British imperialism in India is maintained by a company who possessed an army of Indians. And these sepoys eventually, alarmed by the encroaching British presence throughout their lands and concerned with the forceful imposition of Christian teachings, finally broke ranks and rebelled when forced to use rifle cartridges that had been greased with the fat of both cows and pigs, an action that manages to offend both Hindus and Muslims, respectively. Way to go, Britain. The sepoy rebellion consumed northern India and became a war for independence from Britain. 
Now, it was to prove unsuccessful, and after about a year of fighting, the conflict ended with the British securing their hold on India by July of 1858. The colony would now be directly administered by the British Crown, and the reign of the British East India Company in India came to a formal end. Queen Victoria was now titled the Empress of India, and it was to remain in the possession of the British Crown until 1947. Oh, by the way, take note of how both books we use, that's Traditions and Encounters and Amskill in my class, refer to the Sepoy Rebellion as a quote-unquote mutiny. So I avoid this term because I want to take a moment to shed some light on the definition of a mutiny, at least according to the Oxford Dictionary, which says it is, quote, an open rebellion against the proper authorities, especially by soldiers or sailors against their officers. And I, I, in that definition, have a problem with the word proper, because when you hear the word mutiny, you think those in rebellion are taking unwarranted action against a just force, or at least I do. That's how I perceive it. And this is why I've deliberately selected the word rebellion when describing this event. It might not seem like a big deal, but word choices such as this can have an effect on how we process and think about history. So oftentimes, on another note, you see two general patterns of rule in these colonies, direct and indirect rule. Direct rule is often found in French colonies, and it features European officials personally managing imperial affairs, such as the collecting of taxes, the control of the military, and managing day-to-day -day affairs of the government. They would remove former indigenous rulers and focused on drawing boundaries that were traditionally established along ethnic or cultural lines. Indirect rule, a characteristically British feature, would leave native rulers in their seats of power where they would essentially serve as puppets for their imperial overseers. So in terms of the environment, capitalists seeking to use colonial lands for agricultural development would emphasize the production of cash crops such as tea, coffee, cotton, rubber, palm oil, and opium, among other things, at the expense of growing the crops traditionally grown in a particular region. This had the effect of destroying soil quality as it became depleted of various minerals due to exhaustion from growing the same types of crops, and it had a tendency to increase the likelihood of famine as some regions of various countries, such as India especially, had to import their food because they no longer grew it themselves. When the food producing locations fell on a poor harvest, they were unable to transport their surplus to other parts of the country, and these places reliant upon outside sources for food often starved as agricultural output languished. There were famines in British India where more than 5 million people died in the following years, 1769 to 1770, 1783 to 1784, 1791 to 1792, and 1876 to 1878. There are probably twice as many that resulted in the deaths uh, of more than a million, with the final famine happening during World War II in 1943 to 44. So I have a textbook that I use in another history class that exclaims the development of railroads as a positive impact of imperialism in India, kind of talking about the environmental theme here. And I want to dispel the myth that this was a primary benefit for the people of India. Cotton cultivation is going to greatly expand in India upon British conquest because it was able to be exported back to Britain where their booming textile industries could suck up the raw materials and churn out textiles in mass quantities and at comparatively cheap prices. Railroads constructed in India only helped to accelerate the flight of cotton 
out of India, and what this truly did was bypass India as a manufacturer of cotton textiles, the role in which it had primarily functioned. Now the Indian textile industry was going to be restricted because if it wasn't, there was the threat of its competing with the British industry, and of course this could not be tolerated by imperial authorities. These railroads also helped to send Indian grain off to Britain in times of global agricultural shortfalls, where the smaller global output resulted in higher demand and thus higher prices. It was a cold and calculated rationale to decide that the grain would sell at a higher price in Europe than in India, and so it was exported, resulting quite often in those episodes of famine in which millions would starve. Sure, today India benefits from this system of railroads crisscrossing the subcontinent, but we should not forget it was not developed with the primary intent of serving Indian interests. So the influx of Europeans into the Pacific region led to the development of settler colonies there and the transformation of these places. James Cook's voyages brought him into Australia, and this eventually resulted in migrating British citizens, either in the form of convicts, as I'm sure you've heard before, or voluntary migrants, making their way to Australia and New Zealand. This flow of white migrants resulted in the spread of epidemic diseases, especially smallpox and measles, which proved devastating to the indigenous populations in these places, just as they were when they first arrived in the Americas. The indigenous people that remained still relied upon hunting and gathering, as their ancestors had, but now they were increasingly being pushed off their lands and onto the sparse fringes of these European settlements. Culturally speaking, going to Indochina for a moment here, which is going to be modern-day Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, we see the French colonizing there and looking to expand their cultural influence among the elites by establishing French schools and encouraging conversions to Catholicism. Uh, in the Congo Free State, which is going to be colonized by King Leopold II of Belgium, the civilizing mission, in other words, saying that you're spreading imperialism to help civilize these people who you're conquering, it's used as a cover for the true reason the Belgian king was so interested in colonizing the region. He wanted to exploit its lands ultimately for the harvesting of rubber for the growing bicycle and automobile industries. Leopold would oversee some of the worst atrocities in modern history during his time controlling the Congo Free State, and the first recorded use of the charges of quote-unquote crimes against humanity would be leveled at him for the millions that died under his watch. More to follow on Leopold in the recommendations section. Stay tuned there for an eye-opening documentary recommendation. Finally, in terms of the economy. People around the world are going to be attempting to modernize as the Europeans grow their in, um, industrial expansion. And in the case of Egypt, loans are being provided by Europeans to finance these economic developments. So we have Muhammad Ali of Egypt, not the boxer, as I'm sure that you probably assume right away. He had sought to develop Egyptian industry and improve its military. Now, in order to do so, the government borrowed money from the British. When they were unable to repay on these debts and popular unrest spread as taxation increased, the British government stepped in and secured control of its investments there, particularly the Suez Canal. The canal had completed construction in 1869, and it ultimately connected the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea, cutting British and European access to the Indian Ocean dramatically in time by skipping the need to sail around Africa. Meanwhile, 
Even other groups of white settlers faced significant changes in their society if there were large enough economic incentives to attract European colonial interest. Case in point with South Africa. The Boers, or the Afrikaners, were the descendants of Dutch settlers from the 17th century, and they had primarily established themselves as farmers in the region. During the 19th century, the British had begun to expand their presence in the region, often at the expense of the native Shoza or Khoikhoi people. The Boers had shifted themselves away from British encroachment because they still practiced slavery, while this practice had been outlawed in Britain by 1833. Messi says hi. However, once diamonds and gold were found in the region, the Boers found themselves increasingly in conflict with the British and its colonial population over land. This led to the eventual Boer War of 1899 and 1902 that saw the British triumphant and able to secure their mining interests in the region, much to the pleasure of noted imperialist Cecil Rhodes, the founder of De Beers Diamond Company, someone we'll discuss in my classroom, and I would argue the first person in recent years to witness a debate take place regarding the future status of the monuments that had been dedicated to their memory. Look up, Rhodes must fall, for more on this matter. Anyway, the British and the Afrikaners were able to establish somewhat of a truce between themselves as Afrikaners were pacified thanks to laws that maintained segregation and kept the black African population disadvantaged in all facets of life. So now's the point in the imperialism story where we turn our focus to the resistance movement against imperialism. And I want to point something out right away. Resistance to imperialism was a constant throughout this entire period. It was not simply a reaction laid on in this era as the victims of colonization suddenly stopped feeling sorry for themselves and decided to take action. And the way textbook chapters, and for that matter, this podcast, structure this narrative, it always places anti-colonialism in its own spot. And I appreciate that for the sake of clarity, but it's problematic because it suggests that it only happens here and there when in fact resistance is a constant throughout this whole story. So sometimes this resistance takes a military form in the vein of the aforementioned Sepoy Rebellion, or we even have others, the Maji Maji uprising that took place in German East Africa, and it targeted German colonial outposts and eventually resulted in the deaths of 75,000 warriors and the use of mass starvation as a weapon on behalf of the Germans. Or we see the Modest Revolution that took place in Sudan against fears of British encroachment and that was led by the Mahdi, who was an Islamic leader who declared a holy war against Egypt and therefore by default Britain. This conflict was brutal at times, and it saw the British suffer large casualties in Khartoum in 1885 before they finally overcame the Mahdists in 1898 after having fought for almost 17 years. Now, there are loads more rebellions of the military form, even just in Africa alone, that take place such as the Joza cattle killing movement, the Anglo-Boer War, the Herero Revolt in Namibia, where the Germans went on a genocidal rampage against these people, using tactics and methods bearing unquestionable similarities to those that were used in the Holocaust. We also see the emergence of nationalism in Africa as a response to imperialism. Many of the upper-class males in these places that were colonized were able to receive a Western education where they were grounded in the intellectual roots of the Enlightenment and learned of all the revolutionary values that its thinkers stood for. So it's a difficult task to align those values with the realities of what was happening in their homelands. 
In India, the Indian National Congress would emerge in 1885, where it would begin by attempting to give voice to the Indian people themselves in the colonial government on issues such as famine relief, trade policies, uh, taxation, and other matters. And by the 20th century, the Indian National Congress is going to start to advocate for full independence from Great Britain. And we'd begin to see more nationalist movements start to sweep across Africa after World War One. So we're going to complicate the narrative of this story with a book called The Trouble with Empire by Antoinette Burton. Now, this is a book that significantly impacted not only how I view the topic of imperialism, but how I view world history in a broader sense. When I've learned of European exploration, colonization, and imperialism in the past, I always subconsciously thought of it as a history being performed by the Europeans and history happening to the indigenous peoples. And if you're in my class, you've probably heard me speak of it and address it in, in that phrasing before. So Burton's work places that notion under severe scrutiny by arguing, quote, colonial people as individuals or as a community were not simply subordinates, end quote. She calls for her reader to be more skeptical about the idea that imperial power is simply this inevitable force that is going to take root. She calls for the readers to consider some of their deeper assumptions about the motives during this time period. In one instance, I feel like she's personally calling me out when she talks about the Berlin Conference of 1884 and 1885, because she addresses the way I used to think about it and kind of suggests this whole new way. She says, quote, one way to tell that story, that is the Berlin Conference, is as a process whereby suddenly in half a generation, the scramble gave Europe virtually the whole continent. Africa was sliced up like a cake. The pieces swallowed by the five rival nations, Germany, Italy, Portugal, France, and Britain, with Belgium's King Leopold standing by controlling the heart of the continent in the Congo. Yet the scramble was not simply a competition among European powers. As profoundly, it was a struggle with and against indigenous forces to get and hold on to those territories that Western leaders assumed to be rightly theirs. In this unstable context, the proposition that the Congress of Berlin, where Africa was so famously carved up into the spheres of European influence, was a defensive response to a deepening crisis rather than the offensive strike leading to decades of conquests, is worth considering. If we consider this conference, by the way, end quote, sorry, if we consider this conference happening during the modest revolution, the rebellions taking place in the kingdom of Asante a decade prior, we consider the Arabi revolt in Egypt happening this at this time, and this is also after the Zulu War, then we see that maybe the Europeans are acting defensively to grab what they can before the rebellions are too difficult to fend off. She goes a long way proving her argument with example after example of perilous struggles for imperial consolidation and stability, and I think this quote accurately depicts what is problematic with the traditional ways we've taught and learned about empire. Quote, the rise and fall arc allows us to imagine a defensive endgame without accounting sufficiently for the struggles, stumbles, blunders, defeats, losses, failure, and general turbulence produced by dissenters and disruptors of all kinds. 
and with more regularity than has been allowed in big narratives of 19th and 20th century British imperialism. Tracking how empire worked or didn't work through the trouble it faced, rather than from its presumed success, begins to recast the framework, end quote. I'll say it again and again. The greatest thing about history is when someone tells you to look at the same thing differently, and you see it from their lens, and it completely changes how you perceive so much of what you thought you had understood. Now, if that's not instructive for life in general, then I don't know what is. So the documents we'll focus on in this episode are The White Man's Burden by Rudyard Kipling, written in 1899, and The Black Man's Burden, which was written by Lulu Baxter Guy three years after Kipling's poem in 1902. So to start, Kipling's poem exists in a context that was defined by recent American success in the Spanish-American War, which saw the United States take control of the former Spanish colonies of Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines, where they'd quickly go on to establish governments that would help to secure American business interests in the territories. Soon enough, the Filipino people realized they were not going to be granted the independence they had been promised by the Americans. And a revolt led by Emilio Aguinaldo soon broke out in 1899 excuse me, and would go on to last until 1902. This context helps us to understand Kipling's motives as imploring the United States to join in this noble but unthankful duty to civilize the people they've come to control. This is the racism we've seen justify imperial practices throughout the episode. History Matters, which is from George Mason University, says about this poem, quote, Theodore Roosevelt, soon to become vice president and then president, copied the poem and sent it to his friend, Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, commenting that it was, quote, rather poor poetry, but good sense from the expansion point of view, end quote. Not everyone was as favorably as impressed as Roosevelt. The racialized notion of the white man's burden became a euphemism for imperialism, and many anti-imperialists couched their opposition in reaction to the phrase, end quote. So the first stanza of this poem reads, Take up the white man's burden, send forth the best ye breed, go send your sons to exile to serve your captive's need, to wait in heavy harness on fluttered folk and wild, your new-caught sullen peoples, half-devil and half-child. This reveals Kipling's attitude that America should send its best and brightest to help these supposedly inferior people reach a higher societal development and degree of civilization, even though it's a difficult and thankless task. So, pretty heavy stuff there. And there are lots of reactions and responses to Kipling's poem. The one I chose, there's several Black Man's Burden poems. Uh, I'm going to choose the one from Lulu Baxter Guy. So he publishes his version of the Black Man's Burden in the Cleveland Journal in 1903. It said 1902 earlier, it was 1903. So the Cleveland Journal was an African-American newspaper, and it makes sense that a people who had traditionally been victimized by slavery and racial discrimination in America would identify with those standing in opposition to American imperialist forces abroad. It should also be noted that Filipinos were often depicted as being black in popular society. Uh, look up white man's burden cartoons online. My class, you'll see them. And it's right there, plain for you to see Filipinos being depicted as as if they're from Africa, when of course this is not the case. 
So this makes it even easier for African Americans to identify with the Filipinos out of a sense of solidarity. So Guy's first stanza reads, Take off the black man's burden, the spoon we humbly crave. Have we not served ye long enough, been long enough your slave? Cut loose the bands that bind us. Bid us like men be strong. Think of the brave deeds we have done. Look not for all the wrong. And the brave deeds that Guy refers to are thought to be the service of African-American soldiers who had joined in the charge up San Juan Hill during the Spanish-American War. So there's a lot of debate in this time, that is the, the late 19th and early 20th centuries, about is this imperial project the right thing to be doing at this point in history? And this is going to be continued to be debated through over half of the 20th century. So it is not going away anytime soon in our class. So the recommendation that I have for this week is a pretty lengthy but incredible documentary on King Leopold II's involvement in the brutal exploitation of the people and land in the Congo Free State, and it's called White King, Red Rubber, Black Death. It's available on YouTube. I'll post a link in the blog as always. It's going to leave you wondering why atrocities such as these aren't better known around the world. And I think this question is answered in part by the documentary because it explains that Belgium has done a pretty poor job in addressing their crimes committed in the Congo. The country today still has monuments dedicated to their quote-unquote civilizing mission in the Congo, and it's been hesitant to throw their archives open to those researching about what exactly happened in the Congo Free State in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The documentary relies in part on testimonies made by missionaries, officials, journalists, and merchants who witnessed the horrors firsthand, so it's definitely worth checking out. I, I don't have a nice and neat way to wrap up this episode, but I think that's fitting. So much of our world history is tied up in this period, and its legacy still looms large. I don't think we've adequately addressed the consequences of this period in history, and as long as this fails to happen we're going to have an incomplete understanding of imperialism's impact because it has still yet to be fully addressed. So that's it for this round. Till next time, take care, everyone.